sir. <clears throat> Thank you very much, Pastor. I want to begin by thanking you for the invitation and the opportunity to be here. <clears throat> it's been a wonderful experience, and we are grateful. Thank you for all of you folks supporting the meetings Friday and on through until today, and we thank you for it. The condition of the church, uh, I'm speaking now from America's point of view. I assume that it might be somewhat similar in Canada, but the condition of the church is such that it's very much in crisis mode. And uh, I would like to share a few thoughts with you. All of the studies that I have read, and there have been at least three extensive studies done by reputable people who did the study, and they are telling us that of all of the evangelical fundamental churches in America, 80% are in decline. And 15% are plateaued. They're remaining about the same. And only 5% are growing. It doesn't have to be that way. And I'm trying to help churches understand that, that there are reasons for this condition. And the churches don't need to remain in the condition they're in. And we can see God do some marvelous things in turning churches around and beginning to grow and become all that they ought to be. In our ministry that we have, I have another man who works with me full time, and we are in churches regularly and have been now for 15 years. And we have seen a number of just dynamic results. Uh, I shared with some of the group over the weekend that there is a church in Rochester, New York, for example, asked me to come there and help them uh, probably 10 years ago now. And they were plateaued at 250. Stayed the same for a few years. And when they got done, they began to buy in and understand that without changing the Bible, without changing their message, but changing their methodologies and their approach to ministry, that things could be different. This past year, they had a Sunday in which they were not at 250, but 10 years later now, they were just short of 3,000 people in their services. Two years ago on Easter Sunday, they had 150 adults saved that came forward. That doesn't usually happen anymore in our culture. People are not readily given to going forward when you give an invitation. And they had 150 adults come forward on that weekend. Uh, I could keep going, talking about other churches, some rural, some in more city settings, but God is turning things around. That's not just a sole uh, example. I could take you to Florida, where I helped a man who wanted to start a church and he wanted to reach young couples. That sounds like a rarity in Florida, doesn't it? Uh, you probably think of Florida as a place where all the old people congregate in the winter. 
and spend their winters, and uh, that's mostly made up of old people down there. Uh, really isn't. There are a lot of young families down there, and he wanted to be able to reach young families. So listen to me carefully now. He asked me if I would help him design a service and other ways of serving their family so that they could reach young families. Their church is now five years old, and they are running at 800 people. 90% of them are under the age of 40. So what am I saying to you? I'm saying to you that culture is an issue. The culture in the church is an issue. And you have to analyze and think through how can we best reach people, not to compromise the Bible, but to be able to reach people today where they are in their culture. And that's got to vary from area to area. Just like missionaries, when they go to a foreign soil, they have to figure out how they're going to do their ministry in that culture where they have gone in order to be able to reach people. I've had two of my kids that have been missionaries overseas, one in Ukraine and one in South Africa. So I know that that has worked. And they have done the same kind of things and seen God do some great things. But frankly, there's a lot of confusion going on in the churches. They're not sure why they're declining. They're not sure what's happening. A lot of confusion. He was a young soldier. He desired to go on furlough, and he got his pass to go from Germany down to France. Like every good soldier, his dream was that he might see a beautiful French girl on the way. And sure enough, dreams do come true. He got in the compartment of his train that he was going to ride in and sat down in a compartment of four people. This girl came in, and she was beautiful, and she sat right across from him in this compartment for four people. He was so excited until right behind her came her aunt, who sat down right next to her. And he thought it can't get any worse than this, but it did. For his commanding officer that he really could not stand got on the train and came and sat down right next to him. Now you've got a compartment for four, a soldier, a commanding officer, a pretty little French girl, and her aunt. The boy was pretty suave and debonair, and he began to make some pretty good contact with the pretty girl, and he was doing good. They went through a dark tunnel, however, and all of he heard, all that you heard was the sound of a big kiss and a slap. A little French girl said, that guy can kiss. I'm so sorry, my aunt slapped him. The aunt said, I can't believe that guy kissed my niece, but I'm glad she slapped him. The commanding officer said, I like that kid Spunk. He kissed that girl, and she missed him and slapped me. <laughs> the soldier said, what a day. I kissed a French girl and slapped my commanding officer, and nobody knows what happened. Confusion, that's about the way it is in a lot of our churches. 
We're not sure. And so I feel like the ministry that God has given to me has been something that he wanted me to do in this stage of my life after having served as a pastor for 30 years and been the president of Baptist Bible College and Seminary in Clark Summit for 15 years. And now I've been traveling doing this for 16 years. And uh, God has been good. So I want to think further with you tonight, just like I've been doing all weekend here, see if I can clear some up some of the confusion. Okay? I want to start out by you thinking with me, what is culture? When you think about culture, you use the word, but what do you mean? Let's use a definition from the dictionary, Merriam-Webster Dictionary. The customary beliefs, social forms, and material traits of a racial, religious, or social group. Let's pick that apart just a bit. What do we mean by customary beliefs? Those are the beliefs that you received from your family, your mom and dad, and your extended family, and perhaps your peers, and things that they said to you, and you adopted them as beliefs in your life. And they may have also come from your formal education or from your work setting. Uh, various places were put into you various beliefs that you have believed along the way. Secondly, he goes on to mention material, or excuse me, social forms. Social forms has to do with how you relate to people. And social forms then would include language. You have to use language between people. It has to do with uh, nonverbal communication sometimes as well, body language. It has to do with customs and habits and manners or the lack thereof or various standards, interests, morality, a lot of things that relate to people. For example, our soldiers, we trained our soldiers before they went to Iraq or Afghanistan, how to relate to the culture in that part of the world. If you were back there and somebody was up here and wanted to talk to you and they said, hey, come here a minute, and you did that? Have you ever done that with your finger or your fingers? Hey, come here a minute. They don't do that in that country. Because when you do that in that country, that's what they only do when they call their dog. So if you do that to one of them, you're calling them a dog. Culture. It's something you have to think about. And uh, he goes on in that definition and mentions the material traits. That has to do with what you own has to do with your standard of living. And uh, that varies in various cultures. You compare what you have here in Canada to, say, the Chad in Africa, where they barely have any food. They may not even have a hard house over the top of them to sleep in. They may sleep on the ground. Very different culture. So all three of these go in to make up culture. And all of us have had to work at trying to uh, develop culture and change culture when necessary. Uh, we each have had to do that. 
as time goes by. Let me just talk about my own testimony for a minute. I grew up on a dairy farm in upstate New York, and it was in a small town of about 150 people. It was a typical farming life, 24-7, 365. And it was a culture of talking to Holstein cows most of the day and uh, not too much with people and uh, all kinds of things like that. And I thought everybody lived like that. And and our town, and, and when I grew up on the farm, we didn't travel hardly ever. And we thought every other place was like what we were, what we were like. And uh, then I got saved the year I got out of high school. And God began to work in my heart about ministry. And I sensed he wanted me to go to college down in the south. And so I was married at that point. And we started out for down in the south to go to college. And we needed gas, and we stopped in Lynchburg, Virginia. And that was a day before you pumped your own gas. They pumped it for you, and this guy came out and pumped it. And uh, he said something to me after he pumped the gas, and I couldn't understand him. And uh, I asked him again. couldn't understand him. I had my wife come out and listen to him, and he, she couldn't understand him. And so he went motioned to us to wait there, and he went in the, the in uh, the office there, and he came out with a book in his hand. All he was asking me was, did I want S&H green stamps? I was hearing a form of English I did not know existed. Now, excuse me, if you're from the South and you have a deep Southern accent, I had never heard that before in my life. Uh, The cows never talked to me with that language, and nobody else did, and I didn't even know it existed. I was being introduced to a new culture. And I was going to have to learn how to relate to that culture. And uh, when they said, let me carry you over, they didn't really literally mean that. They were all these cliches and their vocabulary and so on. I had to learn all of that. I grew up in a high school that was a total of 75 students, public school. I went to a college that had 3,000 students. You talk about a difference on the campus between 75 and 3,000. I grew up where there was a church that my family had some connection with. They were not saved. And it ran about 30 people in that little town of 150. I thought every church was like that. And that church was deader than a doornail. And you couldn't hear... Not a thing during the service. A little bit like right here tonight. And uh, all of a sudden, a farmer might walk in, and he sat down when he got in that nice warm auditorium of 30 people. He promptly began to have some strange noise coming out of his mouth and nose, and he's snoring. That's about the only thing you could hear in the service in that little church. So I thought every church was probably pretty much like that. I didn't realize they were different. When I got to college, somebody said, let's go over to such and such a church Sunday night. So we went with them. And we got into a church service where they had a 1,000 people there on Sunday night. 30, 1,000, 
And it was alive. I want to tell you, there were lots of amens and glory to God. And one guy had his handkerchief out, and he was praising God. And down here in the front were two or three or four pews, perpendicular with the rest of the pews. And on there were 50 men. And they were all saying, glory to God. And it was an amen corner is what they called it. And uh, really what they were were the cheerleaders for what was happening on the platform. And my wife and I were so culturally shocked when the announcements were being given and the offering was being taken. We walked out. We couldn't handle it. Later, I went back there. And I adjusted. It was just different. But it, it was fine. They weren't doing anything that wasn't biblical. They weren't violating any scripture. But that was their culture. They were reaching more people in a little town I, in the church that I grew up in. And uh, so I have learned how to, had to learn how to adjust. As a pastor, I've had to adjust over those 30 years that I was pastoring. We got where we didn't like uh, burnt orange carpets and pews and a few other things that we had to be changed, and we had to go to a different culture at different times. That's okay. What I want to get you to see is culture is man-made. You can change it, and it's not simple. And we have traditions and we have preferences, and we have culture, and it's okay. They're all man-made. There's only one thing that God has made that you better not change, and it's this. Do not add to it. Do not take away from it. Take it all, and you believe it, and you practice it. Sola Scriptura. Scriptures only is what you must believe and practice. Well, you know, God himself deals with the issue of culture when he is going to communicate. Let me show you. I used this uh, at our seminar Friday and Saturday. In the upper end this morning, up in the left-hand corner, as I mentioned to you this morning, is God's world. He has a culture there. You can't have existence of beings without culture. God has culture in his world. Then you come down to the lower right-hand corner and you have humans' culture. They have a culture, very different culture than God's culture. When God got ready to reach us, he did not say, I'm going to stay in my culture, and if you want to join me, you've got to come over and become part of my culture. You've got to become like me. No, Jesus Christ, who is God, came into this world and he moved in among the unsaved and he lived among them, embedded among them. I use that term embedded deliberately. We did not have that in our vocabulary much until the Iraq war. And media people prior to that had to depend upon people up front coming back with information. But in the Iraq war, for the first time, they allotted media reporters to be embedded right among the troops 
when they were fighting. Jesus was embedded among the unsaved. He had not pulled away. He had not isolated. He did not stay isolated. Okay? That is a very, very major principle. And many of our churches have basically become isolated subcultures where they only interact basically with Christians. They only have friends who are Christians. Jesus did not live like that. And he was willing, this is the kicker in this whole thing, stop to think about all of the change that Christ went through, not in his person, not in his beliefs, not in the truth, but change took place in his life as he experienced a very different atmosphere, as he experienced a different culture with its languages, foods, dress, music, activities. But he had passion to reach lost people. And I challenge our churches, are you willing to do what he did to reach lost people? I hope you will ponder that and think about that and come to realize that there is a need to become like Jesus. Quickly, turn with Matthew 9. Matthew 9, and we have a story here that's going to show you how Jesus actually did this. And you're going to have the opportunity starting tomorrow, perhaps, when you can live out exactly what Christ is doing here in the text. And you can be like him. So Matthew 9, beginning at verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office, tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's home, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. Jesus was not isolated. He was not disconnected from the unsaved. He was not shouting at them at a safe distance being afraid of getting too close to unsaved people and the contamination that might come. Notice what it says he did. Very precise wording. Jesus passed on. From there. And he saw, seemingly with intentionality, he was seeking out somebody that he could get into their life. And he saw a man that he wanted to get into his life, an unsaved man that he wanted to connect with. And he went to that man. He approached him. He conversed with him. He sat with him. He ate with him. All of the social activities of life he was doing with this man that he saw with intentionality and went and connected with him. You're going to have that opportunity tomorrow perhaps, to do the same kind of thing. Uh, 
Christians somehow struggle with this area of how close you should get to unsaved people, how much time you should spend with unsaved people, much less should you even sit down and eat with them. Jesus did. He's teaching his disciples here in this text to do the same thing. And our culture today is in the church is not really where Christ lived or how he lived. Let me share with you a statement that I sent out to a group of pastors. The church of today is facing a cultural crisis. We have confused the command not to be of the world with not being in it. Western Christians in particular are isolated from the very people we say we long to reach. We've retreated into a subculture of our own making. We listen to our Christian radio, watch our Christian TV, we visit our Christian bookstores, we buy our Christian CDs, we attend our Christian aerobics classes, we populate churches that cater exclusively to the already convinced so that we can be fed and ministered to. As a result, we live in a gospel ghetto. We have become insular in not only our thinking but our very lives. This is even less than subtle hostility toward those who are not Christians. This was not the model of Jesus. He went into the world. He spent time with those who were far from God. He reached out relationally, built friendships, went into their homes, attended their parties, broke bread at their tables, and he ended up being called a friend of sinners. That's how Jesus lived. In the two-day seminars I do with pastors, I typically have 25 to 50 pastors in each one of those. And I get into the second day, and I will turn to those men while talking about this kind of stuff. And I'll say, how many of you men have a social relationship with one or more unsaved people. I have yet to have more than five hands go up in a room of up to 50 people. If that's true among the pastors, I know it's true in the pew. We've got to get out of our erroneous, unbiblical thinking and begin to live like Jesus. We don't have to do their sin. We can live without doing their sin. What kind of people was Jesus doing this with here in our text? He was doing it with tax collectors those that were thought to be the worst sinners in their culture. <coughs> He's doing it with what they called sinners. <coughs> sinners in that <coughs> context is talking about individuals who flaunted God and his word and with abandon lived their lustful lives. They became the scum of the earth. That's who Jesus is pursuing and eating with 
and spending time with and sharing the gospel with as a friend. I recognize that there can be Difficulties if you have significant time with irreligious people and you better know something about your own maturity levels and what situations you should be in with commensurate with the maturity level you're on and you ought to have accountability and all those other things. But friends, we've got to learn to do that just like Christ is teaching his disciples here. A few years ago, I had a couple that were friends of ours and uh, she was in her 60s, and she was working in the kitchen of an assisted living place. And she said to us, we, i got to get out of there. It's terrible in that place, in that kitchen. The other workers in there are young, and all they talk about is hooking up with this one and that one, and some of them are homosexuals in there and lesbians, and i got to get out of there. I said, whoa, 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 why have you got to get out of there? Seems to me like God's put you into a mission field. And maybe you ought to stay there. And maybe you ought to be a witness for Jesus Christ and be able to share Christ in a meaningful way with them. No doubt they will respect you and do respect you. Take advantage of that and learn how to get into their life and share Jesus with them. They need him. Don't flee from the unsaved. Seek them like Jesus did. Second thing, in the next verse, 11, read it with me. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? They were vehemently opposed to Jesus spending time with the unsaved. And they were demonstrating very unattractive and unacceptable attitudes. They were unloving and judgmental and rejecting and isolating. From this morning, get that trash out of here. Same spirit. The church I mentioned in Rochester, and I mentioned that one deliberately, when I was there later in a service, one of the uh, men in the church was there Sunday night, and the pastor saw him come in, and he knew he was going to confront me because he didn't ever wear a suit Sunday night to church. And he was there with his suit on and his yellow tie, a power tie, And he was there to talk to me. He was sure. And sure enough, right after the service, uh, he came to me. And he started to talk to me. And he was very upset about what was happening in the church as the church was beginning to grow and beginning to change and beginning to have a lot of younger couples coming. And he didn't like what was happening. In fact, he was so upset about it that every Monday night he had about 20 people coming to his house so they could all gripe about it. I finally stopped him right there, and I said, Sir, he and I were about the same age. I said, Sir, can I ask you a personal question? He said, Yes. I said, Did you lead anybody to Jesus this year? He started to talk about something else. I said, Whoa, whoa, wait a minute, come back here. We got a question on the table. 
Uh, did you lead anybody to Jesus this year? And he said, no. I said, have you led anybody to Jesus in the last five years? No. Have you led anybody to Jesus in the last 10 years? No. 15? No. 20? 15? No. I said, I bet I could keep going and get the same answer. By the way, he's a graduate of BBC way back in the 50s. He's like these Pharisees, grumbling, complaining, not rejoicing, and very needy. Let me see if I can graphically show you a couple of things that may be helpful. To, to, to connect with the culture, we need to distinguish what is God-made and what is man-made. What God has made are the scriptures. They're wonderful. God-breathed, inspired, authoritative. What man has made are traditions. And there are a lot of different traditions we have in our churches. All the way, whether you have pews or chairs, or whether you're going to sing the Gloria Patri, or whether you're not going to sing the Gloria Patri, or whether you're going to pray before you take up the offering or not, <clears throat> what kind of lighting you're going to have, what kind of programs you're going to have in the church, and programs that have been here forever, and uh, can you touch them, can you change them, can you get rid of them, retire them? Uh, all of these traditions that we have, we have preferences. You may prefer a certain kind of music, does that make other music wrong? We have a culture that we have made. Every church has its culture. Is it a culture that new people coming from the outside are going to feel at home in? You do feel at home. But will they? Will the younger families feel at home? I say to grandparents all the time, do you want a church that your children and grandchildren will want to come to? And I look around in a lot of the churches I'm in, their children and their grandchildren are not there. That tells me they're not willing to make adjustments in their culture so that these younger ones are going to feel like they're part of it and have something meaningful going on. Every generation has its culture. And if you as the older generation insist that the culture has to be yours, they won't be there. Look around. Think about it. To change God's word is compromise. To change traditions and preferences and culture is not compromise. It's okay. God doesn't really care if you change those things. Okay? 
Let me go to another graphic. Sola Scriptura. Scriptures only. We say we believe that the only authoritative thing for dictating what we should believe and practice is the Bible. And that's true. Sola only. Scriptures. Only the Scriptures. And when, how do you depart from the Scriptures? You can depart from the Scriptures from being less than the Word of God by treating them with a relativistic way and saying, oh, that kind of pertained to that day, or you kind of talk it away, and you don't have to follow it kind of an approach. Friends, to be less than the Scriptures is compromise. The emerging church movement, for example, would be part of some of this. Then you go to the other side with all of the legalistic moralism that exists in many of our churches. Legalism is where you have established as authoritative certain rules and regulations. But you can't find a chapter and verse that really says those things. And you say, for example, certain dress styles. Can you find a chapter and verse that says that this will be Sunday dress style? Anybody got a chapter and verse that says that? If God thought that was important, he would have said it. So you find yourself, if you're not careful, going further than God and making it authoritative in people's lives. There are many other things that we do that with legalism. I want to suggest to you that is just as much compromise as being less than the Bible. It's essential that we be people who are striving with all of our being to be where the scriptures are, nothing more, nothing less, but exactly what the Bible is. These people struggled with that. Pharisees. Okay, third thing. I've got to hasten on and open it up for questions. I'm trying to prompt you to give me give you questions, see, areas that you can talk about. And I'm okay with that. Final thing that I want to point out in this text is found in verses 12 and 13. Connecting with the culture becomes the conduit for mercy and the message that brings healing. Listen to this. On hearing this, what the Pharisees just said, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Think on that illustration that Jesus used there. How many of you know a doctor that never comes in contact with sick people? Anybody know a doctor that never comes in contact with sick people? No. Doctors are embedded among sick people. They take precaution so they don't get infected. They wash their hands often. They wear gloves. They wear masks sometimes. They do other things to keep their immune system up. And they're careful not to become infected 
by being among the sick people, but they're there in order to be able to care for the needs of the sick people. Jesus is saying to you and me that we have got to come to be just like that among the unsaved. That we got to be there embedded in order to be able to reach them. And he went on to say this, but go and learn what this means. Furthermore, he's saying, you Pharisees who are unloving and critical and judgmental of other people, especially the unsaved that are terrible, he said, I want you to learn something. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Mercy. Mercy are emotional feelings of empathy, willing to move into a relationship, willing to share, to meet needs, felt needs in people's lives. That is awesome. Legalistic churches are not merciful churches. Legalism and mercy do not coexist. Mercy is what we need to become. People that have real feeling. We hurt when they hurt. We reach out to them because we love them. We care about them. Even if they are skateboarders, even if they are pedophiles, even if they are registered sex offenders, even if they are people that are lost, does that kind of heart beat in your chest? A heart like Jesus? I've got to stop here. I'm just so burdened to reshape our churches to become what they can be and what Jesus wants them to be so that they will be dynamic in reaching lost people. The church that Jackie and I belong to in Clark Summit, Pennsylvania, was pastored by a man that used to be a kid in my Sunday school when I pastored. He ran around in the church building. He was part of the kids' corps that was running around there in the church building. And he got saved, and I baptized him. And then he went to BBC to go to school, and he graduated from school. And God called him to become the pastor of a small church in Clark Summit of 30 people. That was 25 years ago. Today, this past year, he had a weekend of multiple services in Scranton and its area of 3,600 people, 3,600 people. Every year, we saw him baptize 150 people on one weekend. He and his other pastors how did he get like that? 
by practicing what I'm talking to you about, by seeing it in the scriptures, and by inculcating that into the fiber of that church and bringing that church to a place where it could reach people. People wanted to be there. People were ministered to. And they experienced change lives for God. Have I jogged you enough to get you to ask a question? Feel free to ask it. There is no dumb question. Any question that you have. Or am I coming to the question part too abruptly? <laughs> Anybody? Okay. Uh, I can You know what the famous last words of a dying church are? We never did it that way before. And uh, sometimes when we have traditions that we've built up in a church, and traditions aren't bad unless they get in the way of your reaching people. Uh, every one of our families has traditions, right? Some of you have the tradition that you open your Christmas presents on Christmas Eve, and some of you open your Christmas presents on Christmas morning. And you have other traditions in your family. They're not bad. You don't just try to get rid of every tradition. I'm not talking about that. The only time it is, becomes bad is when you elevate that tradition to a point that it's, when it's no longer useful is no longer accomplishing what you wanted it to accomplish and is keeping you from getting to something that is better and more effective and more fruitful. Be willing to make changes in anything that is man-made and be willing to never change God's word but it's okay to change things. You probably could put it in a more theological, stated way. But, uh, good. Thanks for breaking the ice.
That is an excellent question, and a pastor and I are going to spend some time tomorrow talking about that, some, about some next steps, and not radical things, but the next steps. What are some of the things that could be done that would make the church more effective in reaching lost people, more effective in reaching younger families, your children, your grandchildren? and others. And it's going to take some time. It's going to take some study on the part of you people. You're going to have to really understand what the culture is out there. What are the people? What are they like? In America, <clears throat> we have a much more casual culture than we used to have. Consequently, when they come to church, they're interested in a more casual. And if they come and find people, for example, dressed very differently than they ever dressed. And it can be an issue. Studies have told us that in America, only 20% of all men own a suit. That means you can only reach, if you're going to wear suits in your services, does that mean you can only reach the 20% of the men that have a suit? That they'll come in and feel comfortable? Uh, these questions are things you're going to have to answer. And I, these churches that I refer to, they've found the answers for them and their culture in the communities where they are. And God has used that. And they're seeing dynamic things happen. It can happen here. I want you to be hopeful and come to be comfortable would change in the areas that it doesn't matter to God. Be uncomfortable if you're talking about change with the Word of God. Okay? Anybody else?
Okay, anybody else? I know you've sat patiently and listened wonderfully well. Anybody else got anything you want to say or ask? If you don't want to ask it publicly, you can see me afterwards and ask. I'll be happy to try to answer. Uh, the issue of culture and dress uh, is changing styles and so on. God has spoken about modesty. That's an issue of the scriptures. Wherever there is an issue of scriptures and God has spoken, you better listen. You better do what he says. But some other areas like styles, he hasn't told us that there's a certain style for Sunday. I don't think he cares about that. As long as you honor uh, modesty, he has made a distinction between male and female. And all of this movement in our world towards neutral gender uh, kind of things and thinking is contrary to the scriptures. And so I think we need to honor where God has spoken, but where he hasn't spoken, you're free to make any changes and you're not violating. So many of us were raised a certain way. Like uh, I've had people tell me that I don't feel like I'm respecting God if I don't dress a certain way when I go to church. And usually I say to them, okay, now let me see. Let's follow that through. When you go home, do you take off whatever you got on when you're at church? Is God still there? Does that mean when you took it off, when you got home, you stopped respecting God? Uh, If I believed what you believe, I would have to take a shower with certain clothes on because I'd stop respecting God. Uh, So think things through. Don't just have uh, straw men that you put up and they're not really young people and others see right through that. And they don't agree with that. It's good to have young people challenge us. (laughs) I lived on the campus for 15 years, and we had hundreds of students, and it's okay to have them challenge us and challenge our thinking and make us think, and uh, that's that's a good thing. But these are the kind of issues I think you're going to have to talk about. And I never came to a place where I said, you have to wear a certain style at church, whether it's casual or more formal. I think you can wear whatever you want to wear. But I think the overall general picture of the church and what is being worn needs to be more reflective of the culture that's around us so that when they come in, they feel comfortable. And you're not going to reach them otherwise. 
You got to get close to them before you can talk to them. Pastor. As we go tonight, just a couple of things. Number one, I need help. I can't do this alone. I got to grow. Number two, You probably won't see me come in next Sunday with blue jeans and a tattoo and an earring, okay? <laughs> Give me a couple weeks. I'm working on it. <laughs> We're a family, are we not? One of the hardest conversations we had with our family was last year at Christmas. when it became very evident to me sitting in my daughter's living room with all of us there, this will be the last time we're going to be able to do this. <laughs> because the families are so big and they're so scattered and it's like, it was just, it was killing us to do this. And I remember having to swallow hard and I started down that trail and it was hard for them. They were like, no, 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 no. And then you could see little by little lights going on. So this Christmas, they're freed up to go and visit the other side of the family. I say that because that helps me to understand a little bit. This is us. We're not pushing anybody out the door here, folks. <laughs> that isn't the point of it. It's to open the doors up and to free it in so people can come in, right? He talked about numbers. Don't be afraid of numbers. I get it that in my head. Well, it's all about the numbers. That's, a, that's a, you know, we just want the numbers. It's not the numbers. It's the souls. It's your neighbors. It's just contact. It's others you don't even know you're going to have. They're going to, it's like, instead of just talking to them about the weather, we've got to be Embedded, I like that word. Enough that we can share what can set them free. And I think we need to be honest. Yeah, it's going to cost us something. Because it cost God a lot. Why shouldn't it cost us something? But there's nothing more exciting, is there? 
than to look around and to see people that you have had a part in seeing come to Christ. Isn't that what we long for? I hope that's what you're going to dream about. Because that was the original intent in 1952 when a group of people came and they decided that the people's church would incorporate. It was to reach this community. What a wonderful start to a missions month. Thank you, sir. We have thoroughly, I can't say I enjoyed it, thoroughly have been challenged by it. You have questions, comments, let's talk about it. This is open, right? Let's, let's continue the conversation. Let's not just go home, take our little part, and then walk away. Let's think it through, and let's continue the dialogue. Let's stand together. Let's close in prayer. Dear God, we thank you so much for all that we have heard, seen, and witnessed, and have been challenged from the word, and your spirit is driving into our thinking even as we close in prayer. We know that this is something that is from on high. It's something that you have for us. It's not about us becoming a church of 50,000 people. It's a church that is caring and committed to its community without compromise, shedding the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. God, we thank you for each one that is here, each one that calls this their home. And God, for those right now, whom you have in mind for us to reach out to. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.